everybody and welcome back to the Moving Pictures Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Holtzclaw, and we are finally back for season two. We are back in action. I've been prepping and planning during my hiatus. I also moved and I got a new job and I'm still in school. So things have been crazy, but I took that time to prep and make this podcast even better. So today marks the first official episode of this podcast where I am recording audio and video. So if you would like to watch instead of listen, head over to my YouTube channel. This video and many more will be up soon. I'm super excited for you guys to see all that I have planned and all that I'm gonna do. This is a really big passion project for me and I'm so glad that you guys care enough to watch it or listen to it and that you guys want to hear my voice and hear me babble about movies all the time. What I wanna do for season two is I want to talk more about the film aspects rather than kind of blanketly talking about the story with little hints of film. I want to really analyze and digest this whole concept of a movie from a film perspective first and then kind of sprinkle in the content and the plot and the story and the big impact that it has on audiences and society. But I really want you guys to learn something and I want you to um, kind of hear my knowledge and hear kind of what I've been learning in school and in life and just kind of how I've put it into these movies. And so that's what I'm going to start doing today. Um, what we're going to do for this first episode is I'm going to talk to you guys oh, kind of about the basics. I'm going to give you guys a lot of my notes and my opinions and stuff from my research. And then I'm going to bring on a guest for kind of like a, a second half of, of this episode. I will have a guest and we're going to dive into contents and plot and story more than I might. So today for the first episode of season two, we're going to be talking about Promising Young Woman. Again, as always, if you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. I'm going to spoil it for you right now. So I have all the details right here in front of me. Um, the significant people in this film are the follows. The writer and director is Emerald Fennell. Producers, Emerald Fennell, Margot Robbie, Ashley Fox, Tom Ackerley, and more. The DP, the director of photography, or otherwise known as a cinematographer, is Benjamin Crisson. And... I have learned so much more about how important editors are, video and sound. And so I just thought it would be appropriate to add them to the list of this these significant people that I'm listing. So the editor for this film is Frederick Thorival. And for the sound editors, the re-recording mixers are Frederick Dubow, Tony Salas, and Scott Weber. The sound mixer is Robert Eber. And the dialogue editor is Rob Noakes. This film is distributed by Focus Features. It was released on December 25th, 2020 to the general public. They're, they had a budget of five to $16.9 million. And I, I don't know how it could be such a wide range, but it was. They made $11.3 million in box office revenue. And the entire thing was shot in 23 days, which is amazing. That's very um, time efficient, uh, <laughs> cost effective, if you will. Um, so it stars Carrie Mulligan as Cassandra Cassie Thomas, Bo Burnham as Ryan Cooper, Allison Brie, Chris Lowell, Laverne Cox, Jennifer Coolidge, Connie Britton, Max Greenfield, and more. 
So I just kind of want to give you guys a summary. If you haven't seen it, this might be kind of a vague summary, but I will, don't worry, I'll fill in the gaps for you. Nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. She's wickedly smart, tantalizingly cunning, and she's living a secret double life by night. Now, an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs from the past. So, again, like I said, pretty vague, but here's kind of the timeline for the story. So, 10 years ago, Cassie's best friend Nina was gang raped at a party while she was in med school by fellow classmates. And they recorded it and they kind of ridiculed her for it, made fun of it, thought it was a joke. And even when Nina came forward to tell the dean what had happened, she wasn't believed. And multiple times she wasn't believed when she told this story. And so it's not explicitly said, but we can gather that Nina committed suicide soon after this event. And Cassie talks about how she had to drop out of med school alongside Nina because she had to take care of Nina. Nina was so traumatized and such a shell of a person because of this incident that she couldn't function and Cassie had to, um, had to help her. So Cassie goes on what looks like a long-term revenge path. And I say long-term because we have no evidence really of how long exactly this has been going on. All we know is that there are a lot of tallies in her notebook and we figure out that she makes tallies every time she kind of gets her revenge on a man. So that's kind of all we have to go off of is how many tallies and there's a lot. So her initial revenge. So not the revenge that kind of comes to fruition at the end, at the beginning. This is her, her kind of plan and her plot and her hobby, if you will. She goes out to clubs. She pretends to be really drunk and she waits for a skeezy guy to take her home and try to do non-consensual activities to her while they think she is intoxicated and and or unconscious and what she does is this really bad thing where when it gets to a certain point she just kind of snaps out of it and she's totally sober and you know she says things like what are you doing i said what are you doing I want to go home now. I said I want to go home now. All of these things that kind of make this man realize that she's not actually drunk and she's very aware of what he's trying to do. And in my opinion, that's super dangerous. And I think a lot of a lot of women would agree with me. That's super dangerous to put yourself in that position, even if you're sober, to put yourself in a position to be alone with a man who is trying things, um, that's really scary to me. That doesn't seem like a good idea, but in the realm of this movie, it's super bad. It's super empowering, honestly, just watching watching her be so awesome. I mean, I don't even know how else to use to describe it. She is so calm and collected when she gets, gets sober, when she finally, you know, shows that she's not actually drunk. And it just, gets to this point where it freaks the guys out. Cause they're like, oh, I thought you were drunk. I thought I was gonna get away with this. I thought I was gonna be able to do something and then trick you into thinking it was consensual or you not remembering or kicking you out after and you not even not even knowing where you were before you got home. You know, all of these things that that I think are implied that this man was trying to do kind of just 
all come to a head. And, and I want to talk about sound in specific detail in a bit, but this, the suspense and the sound and the music and kind of all that, that accumulates as she's confronting these men are just super intense. And it, if you saw it in the trailer, it makes you think this is kind of like a horror movie, like she's going to kill this guy, but she doesn't. She doesn't kill any of them. She just scares them and is like, well, next time maybe you should use your brain and like not do this. It's amazing. And so anyway, so <laughs> that's her, that's her kind of temporary revenge plot. That's, that's what she's doing almost every night. And during the day she works at a coffee shop and no one really knows that she's doing this. No one really knows what's going on. And she stops doing this actually because she reconnected with a guy from medical school and they start dating and it's like the most amazing meet cute and the relationship is adorable. There's so many like montages of them eating in bed and then them dancing to Paris Hilton in a pharmacy, which is like so weird and kind of unrealistic, I guess, but so cute. And it really brings you in to think that this girl has finally found her happiness and that she doesn't have to be stuck in this hard time that she's really been, been kind of harboring on. And, you know, I'm going to spoil it for you guys. He ended up being in the gang rape. He did. Technically, he, he was a bystander, but he didn't do anything. He didn't stop it. He thought it was funny. And he never came forward. He never believed Nina. He acted like it never happened. And he came up with stupid excuses for why he did it and why he shouldn't be punished for it now. And I don't, I'm not going to get to the end yet. I want to save that. Um, but there's a twist and it's awesome and horrible and sad and empowering and creative and unique. So I will get to that in a little bit. I just want to save that. I want you guys to have something to look forward to. I am going to go into details of something that we call mise-en-scene and it essentially describes everything that's on screen. So costume, lighting, acting, hair and makeup. Um, some argue that mise-en-scene includes camera placement, um, but that just kind of depends on who you ask. And um, actor blocking can sometimes be considered. So all of those things, when I say mise-en-scene, that's what I'm talking about. So first, I want to jump into shots and angles. So Cassie is so central in so many shots, which I mean, she's the main character, she should be. But what's really interesting is that there's so much symmetry in these shots and she's usually in the center. So she is the center point of this symmetry. And it's so beautiful when she's in comparison to set design in the background. And kind of what I thought while watching it, the second and third time, I thought that they really centralize her. So they do a straight on, you know, kind of wide angle. So for example, um, in the beginning, when she's in the club, the very opening, the very opening scene. So she's in the club. She's by the red sofas. You probably have seen it in like a promo or on social media. It's a very prominent picture from the movie. And she's sitting there and she, you know, her head's dangling um, because she's, supposed to be drunk acting like she's drunk and she is completely centered and you can see head to toe 
So it's very much the rule of thirds where you see top, middle, and bottom all around. And it's really powerful because that sets up the entire movie. This is her ruse. This is what she does. And we don't know that yet because this is the beginning of the movie and we haven't seen what she's doing yet. We just see this girl at a club and we think she's drunk. And that kind of sets up the scene for this whole dramatic action where we actually figure out why she's pretending and why she's doing this and, and what she does. Another example is when she's walking down the street um, during the opening credits and she's being catcalled. She is so central in these shots. I mean, you, the camera is tracking her feet walking down the street and there is an equal amount of um, background on both sides above and below her. And it's really interesting to me that they chose this symmetry because I love that look. I love a clean, crisp, kind of even look. I think they did this to kind of emphasize certain moments more than others. And and I think in this catcalling scene, which I want to talk about with my guests, it's really important to understand what's happening in that moment. And I think the framing really does that. I think specifically the framing of her. Because when we see the catcallers, they're not centralized. They are um, to the left of the screen. And you see more more side on the right than you do the left. You barely see any background on the left of these people. And to me, that just shows that they're not central characters. They're not important other than this message that Cassie is helping to send. And, you know, again, when Madison is talking to her at lunch, there's so much centralization and symmetry that I think creates such a beautiful representation of Cassie. And, and I feel like you can feel who she is more because you're so drawn to her and she's the only thing you really want to want to see. She's the only person you want to look at. Also, there's one really amazing tracking shot that ends very symmetrically, symmetrically at the end um, when she's a fake stripper, she slips in her shoes and the camera, um, pans from her feet up to the back of her head and she's very centralized and you know something is about to go down like you you just know it you can feel it and it just again it emphasizes who Cassie is and and kind of her mental state and where she is which you know is kind of also shown by lighting and color and and sound and editing and and kind of all these things that I'll get into so another thing that I really like that I mentioned is, are the, the zooms and the tracking shots. And so with this camera movement, even if the actor isn't moving, it still creates this sort of storytelling where you kind of become a voyeur, you're watching it, it's your eyes moving um, up her spine when she's at work and leaning over the counter a little bit. And to me, those shots really helped me capture who she was. And to me that just captured her, it captured her costume really well. You know, when you, when you go from top to bottom of her, you get to see what she's wearing, you get to see what she looks like, you get to see how she walks, how she moves, how she is. And fun fact, costume designer Nancy Steiner drew her Cassie look from 70s iconic fashionistas and kind of stars of the time. And she used pastels to kind of give the impression that during the day 
Cassie was this sweet kind of cheerful person and she was super happy and then at night she was wearing neutrals mostly whites and blacks and she had really heavy makeup um and her hair was kind of in disarray most of the time and the and and Nancy wanted to kind of contrast who she was during the day and the night because her she kind of has two faces she has two personas she has two people inside of her she has the super closed off just working quietly kind of cheerful in quotes person and then she becomes this kind of revenge monger at the end uh, at night at the end of the day at night and it's just really it's it's interesting to find that contrast and I'll kind of talk about that when I talk about colors because that also colors the use of colors the use of set design colors throughout the film change and they signify this difference between daytime Cassie and nighttime Cassie so after she threatens Dean Walker um, she goes into her office to get verbal revenge on Dean Walker who didn't believe Nina she basically said you know oh you trust these boys so much you trust their word over women's so I left your daughter with these men and she didn't but of course it's torture for Dean Walker and they're screaming and fighting and so this is kind of the aftermath of that that result and kind of what it did to her and we can't really hear him super well which I think again signifies that she's not with reality but it's kind of like hushed um, voice kind of in the distance because she's not fully comprehending where she is right now and her surroundings. This music is the best choice for this scene. The best choice. And the way that it increases and it kind of builds up just brings so much so much more satisfaction with what she does next. And here we see a big pan of the camera just around her body as we zoom out to see where she is and see more of her surroundings. And to me that just kind of represents kind of where she is mentally and how she's just kind of She's just reeling. She really is just shocking herself with this behavior. But when she's when she's going through it, she's so confident. And then when she comes back from it, she's, you know, when it's over, she's really faced with her anger and her sadness and her depression and and the pain that she's been using revenge to try and get past. Amazing. You know, again just such great shots and so many good angles and kind of different angles and um there's a lot of straight on close-ups you know kind of like I said in that clip with the pan and just kind of circling the camera around her you can kind of you just understand that she is not okay she's just kind of freaking out at this point and there's some other shots where when she is exacting her revenge on different people the camera is at a very low angle and typically that kind of sends a message of superiority where um, the person in power is higher up you're viewing that person from below them and so it just kind of shows that the audience and whoever they're talking to is lower down than this person and kind of an example of this is when she's at the restaurant with Madison and we see the chandeliers and the light fixtures behind her and there's one that's literally right above her head and it's this big round red 
light fixture of some sort. And to me, that kind of signals like how she isn't being a great person to Madison. And I'm not saying she isn't justified and I'm not saying she isn't right to say every everything that she said. And I don't think Madison is right. But the color red to me just really screamed revenge to me. It screamed evil. It screamed kind of madness. It screamed all of these things that that white light fixtures wouldn't really tell you, wouldn't tell me. And she is at eye level or slightly higher, except for at the end when she's spilling her wine, realizing that she's really drunk and possibly drugged. And when she spills the wine, the camera is really low to the table and it seems as if the wine is spreading towards the camera, as if it's gonna get on the camera, it's that close. And to me, again, that just kind of signals like the craziness and, and the, the chaos that this revenge is causing, that this revenge is, is enacting on other people. And to me, that, that is what's happening. She, she's trying to exact revenge to, to get some sort of fulfillment and closure and, and to take the pain away, but that, that doesn't happen. That's, that only causes more chaos. And the spilling of the wine, the red wine, red, reminds me of that feeling. And, you know, again, there's just a lot of straight on establishing shots, very, very wide angles of the landscape and the scene and the production design. And you can really just kind of, kind of get the whole picture for the most part. And then we get to see the closer up images of of the back of her head or her costume or another character's costume or their face. And it's really powerful to kind of have that whole image. And I think that that might be what I love about this is that there's symmetry, but there's also so much complexity in each shot that you get such a such holistic image. You get more than just that one establishing shot and you never see your shoes again. You you know, you get to see all of the little bits and pieces that make up her and make up her costume and her hair and, and her character and, and kind of who she is as a person. So I'm going to kind of circle around back to lighting and colors. So filmologist Kenneth Wynn that I found on, on YouTube, he says that this film boasts a colorful bubblegum pop aesthetic that contradicts the dark undertones of the story. And I couldn't agree more. I think that Cassie during the day is this bubblegum type person. She's wearing pinks and yellows and her nails are like rainbow pastel colors. And all together, it's this candy flavor color palette. And, you know, he makes a really good point as to why. Why she has this color palette during the day versus her dark neutral tones at night with heavy makeup, no really pops of color. The lighting has changed a lot. It has club lighting, strobe lighting, um, dark living room lighting, bedroom lighting. It's super low. It's, it's, you can't see as clearly as you could during the day. And, um, and I think that just kind of parallels that her revenge and her going out at night is directly related to the hard topic that she's dealing with. The hard topic that she's bringing to these men that are trying to do the exact same thing that happened to Nina, she's representing this hard, dark theme. And that directly contradicts how she is during the day. 
So pink and blue are the dominant colors of this film. So pink to me represents stereotypical women or girls, right? It's the color for female and blue is the color for male, um, stereotypically. And to me, this contrast, it, it kind of relates to the whole, the whole theme of the movie, which is kind of guys versus girls, men versus women. And, and the evil that these men in the story put on Nina and Cassie and, and other women. And I think that using these colors kind of draws the attention of the audience to the message. And I think that that, again, is, I mean, that's an amazing technique. I think that's a really good tool. And again, what Kenneth noticed that I noticed is that every person, specifically the men who have done Cassie wrong, all wear blue at some point. They wear some sort of tone of blue. And Ryan actually was wearing blue when they first met and Cassie was wearing pink. And so it directly correlates between these two worlds that she's fighting between who she is during the day, who she is during the night. And when Ryan is introduced and she's fighting between her current present of 10 years later, she's still without Nina and still dealing with it versus her time in med school with Nina when this horrible incident happened. And so all of the men represent the dark evil themes of this movie and she during the day she represents women and she represents her life where she's pretending that she isn't still dealing with this heartbreak and this painful situation and I think to me this also kind of correlates with what I was just saying about lighting where there's always kind of a blue tint at night when she's out and when she's in the club and when she's at someone's house there's always kind of that that bluish tint. And if you'll notice, all of the guys that she like goes home with or meets at the clubs and the bars, they all wear blue. All of them. They are all wearing blue. And so it kind of has this representation that when she falls in love with Ryan, she starts wearing blue. And so she becomes a part of that world. She's changing. She's She totally stopped getting her revenge on random guys. And so... As she starts wearing the blue, then it's kind of these two personas, these two worlds, these two people inside of her coming together. And she's kind of becoming one of one of them, one of the people that have forgotten the past and have moved past it, moved, moved on from the Nina incident. And some of it is good. Like, for example, Nina's mom wears blue. Nina's mom was so sweet and they talked, she and Cassie talked about Nina and kind of reminisced and... Nina's mom had to give her the, the hard truth of you have to let this go. It's not good for anyone. It's not good for you. It's not good for Nina. It's not good for anyone that still misses Nina. You coming back and reminiscing and bringing all of this up again doesn't help anyone that's trying to move on. And, you know, so some, so some of this blue towards the end when she's falling in love with Ryan is not bad. It's not just representing the evil. It's representing forgetfulness, but, but for Cassie in a healthy way, her, moving past this incident and not spending her time exacting revenge on random men, I think to her that was really helpful. That was a good step in the right direction. And of course, of course, Ryan had to ruin it. He just he just couldn't be the good guy. He, he just couldn't. Because when Madison finally showed her the video of these guys that they took of, of Nina at this party, Ryan's voice 
comes on and Cassie's heart just sinks and you feel it. And I'm going to show you this clip because it's so significant. But, but before we watch it specifically, I want to point out that Cassie's wearing blue and the entire room that she's in is pink. And so it's contrasting her, her worlds and, and her personas because it, it's all about to end. Her, this happiness that she was that she thought was gonna last ends. It crashes completely. And so she is in between who she was and who she is now and and this revenge plot. And and it, to me, these kind of resemble mental states that she's in. Um, the mental state of her when she's wearing pink, she is not okay, but she's pretending that she is. And when she's in blue, she's happy and she's in love and she's loved and she feels amazing. <sighs> and it sucks. Oh, before we go, I really want to point out this sound. So it's very much what um, sound people, sound editors would call a rumble. So that that it's kind of given that name based on its wavelength when you when you kind of see it, but it is a rumble. It is this, or a drone. Okay, oh, I'm I'm open to to also calling it a drone, because a drone also sounds like music, but it's not. Um, but there is a mix of music, which is why I want to say that it's a rumble because that rumble has just that gradual buildup, and then it just has a drop, and that drop just kind of fades out gently, and that's exactly how I would describe this boom. It's so significant in the scene. And it, it makes my, my chest cave when I hear it because of what's happening when it, when it fires, when it booms. Um, and so I just want you to keep your eyes, keep your eyes and ears open for that. Did you hear it? We're gonna go back a second. I want you to hear it right when she hears Ryan's voice. Listen to that boom. Oh my god. I just got chills. I also want to point out that here, she is not perfectly centered. Which is odd. But that could just be because of the pan. She was centered before, so you know what, we're just gonna count that as symmetry. Um, either way, it's beautiful and she looks very central. So, um, kind of as you can see, then these two worlds are just kind of always going against, kind of always fighting throughout this movie. And she's kind of fighting in her head between the worlds and, and kind of mental states and where she is. And so after the scene, of course, she's like, I can't be with Ryan anymore because he was a bystander. He was there watched it he laughed at it he was in the video um and so she actually goes to his where he works which is a hospital I believe he's a doctor and the whole set is blue for the most part blue and white it's just everything has a very blue tint she's wearing a blue dress um I'm pretty sure he's wearing a blue top I'll look up a picture and his office has a very blue tint and has a lot of blue um pictures on the wall and the lighting kind of shining through the windows looks really blue and so and this is just kind of where she says, you know, this is it. Um, and he gives all the 
all those really lame excuses. I'm sorry, that guy could have come up with something better. Then I was a kid, have you never done anything wrong that you regret? All of this, all the stupid guilty things that people say when they're caught. But, you know, when she leaves, she walks out of this blue room wearing a blue dress and she says, bye Ryan. Then she's symbolically saying bye to that side of her, to that, that, that world and that, that side that she was so happy in. And that's when the ending comes in. And I'm going to bring in my guest for the bachelor party scene in the mountains or woods or whatever. Because I really want to cover this with her and just kind of dive into it really, really deeply. So thank you guys. And I will be back with my guest. Now if you run into Bless your life, it isn't her. Could she love? Could she woo? Could she? Could